there was a, a vibe to it. It was a lifestyle to it. Unlike I think what healthy food in the U.S. was, and it kind of like sparked you know, this light bulb, like, why does that not exist in the U.S.? Why can't there be a place to eat that is healthy, that is still really delicious and convenient and affordable and cool, quite honestly, and make a, you know, really cool and fun brand around it. And so it started off as, let's just do this as for fun. Let's open one restaurant. It was the beginning of senior year. We decided we were going to open one restaurant and see what happens. And we had no idea what we were doing at all. You know, we took over a 500 square foot space. We thought it would take us a couple months. We thought we'd open it by like the spring of that year. And of course, everything was harder, took much longer. But at the same time, as we kind of dug in, we we're like, whoa, this isn't an idea for one restaurant. This is an idea maybe for a national and one day global change. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's The Wolf. Today on the show, we have Jonathan Neiman, the co-founder and CEO of Sweetgreen. Yes, that is Sweetgreen, the salad chain that IPO'd for over a billion dollars. And no, they are not a franchise. However, this was an opportunity I didn't want to turn down. It's not every day you have one of the fastest growing ever fast casual chain CEOs wanting to be on your podcast. And I thought, hey, they raised a couple hundred million dollars along the way. They founded this back in the mid-2000s after graduating from Georgetown University, and they've grown it from one location near Georgetown to obviously a nationally recognized salad brand. A lot of interesting stories on marketing and brand building from Jonathan in this conversation, as well as why they decided not to franchise and what the future of Sweetgreen holds, and particularly how they've leveraged technology and, as most recently, robotics within their concept. I think you're going to love this conversation. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Finding meaningful work is important. Home Clean Heroes is a franchise with a positive mission to donate a portion of every cleaning fee to first responders. And currently, they're looking for business savvy owners to help expand their locations. If being part of something bigger than yourself drives you, then this is a business opportunity you simply can't refuse. Go to homecleanheroesfranchise.com to learn more. That's homecleanheroesfranchise.com for more information. I kind of just want to start at the beginning. I think it's interesting. I mean, you guys started Sweetgreen in college. You have two other co-founders. So before we even get into founding Sweetgreen, how'd you meet your co-founders? And just were you guys generally entrepreneurial? Or or like, did did this idea just come out of nowhere? Like, yeah, let's start with just your relationship with Nathaniel and Nicholas. Yeah, so I'll take you all the way back. So I grew up here in Los Angeles and ended up at Georgetown in, I guess I started school in 2003. In freshman year, I, I walk into my dorm room. First person I met right when I walked in, next door neighbor was Nicholas Jamey. And, you know, him and I really bonded throughout school, really over just a love of food. His family was in the restaurant business. So they were more fine dining. You know, they had a number of like, you know, they had a really nice restaurant in New York. It was called Le Caravelle. It was kind of like a 
French institution, French fine dining institution. And I always loved food. I never thought I'd ever be a restaurateur, get in the restaurant business at all. But I, I just love to eat. And, I, you know, I love restaurants and loved love food. And Nathaniel, I met uh, a few days later, I met him in Accounting 101. He was also from LA and, you know, two kids from LA, Georgetown really stuck out like sore thumbs. So you could immediately like (laughs) tell I was wearing like a Lakers shirt. He was wearing a Dodgers hat and they were both wearing Converse and were, you know, and immediately became friends. And I'd say all of us were entrepreneurial. I think that's actually what brought us together as friends is all of our parents were immigrants to the United States and they were in and were entrepreneurs. So my parents came from Iran. Nick's parents came from France and Lebanon and Nathaniel from Mexico and Taiwan from China. And so, you know, mix of backgrounds, but all of our parents were, you know, small business entrepreneurs in their own right, all did very different things. But I think we always saw that as the example, like, you know, when we were at school at Georgetown, the track was always to like go into banking or consulting or, you know, you're going to get yep. a job. That was never really what we looked forward to for us. It was always about going and starting something. I just didn't think it was going to be a restaurant. And it was, you know, we all went through college. We were, we were friends. I don't even say we were like best friends, but we were good friends that respected each other, kind of saw that entrepreneurial like nature in each other. And then it was really senior year. I had just gotten back from being abroad. I was in Australia Nate had spent some time in Madrid and we all got back and I'd seen a lot in Australia around this way of living and eating food, which if you've been there, like if you go to like the Aussie cafes, which have now kind of come to the US, you see there's this like, there's this culture around this cafe culture. It's a delicious, healthy food, but it was also like cool and there was a a vibe to it. It was a lifestyle to it. Unlike I think what healthy food in the US was and it kind of like sparked you know, this light bulb, like, why does that not exist in the US? Why can't there be a place to eat that is healthy, that is still really delicious and convenient and affordable and cool, quite honestly, and make a, you know, really cool and fun brand around it. And so it started off as, let's just do this as for fun. Let's open one restaurant. It was the beginning of senior year. We decided we were going to open one restaurant and see what happens. And we had no idea what we were doing at all. You know, we took over a 500 square foot space. We thought it would take us a couple months. We thought we'd open it by like the spring of that year. And of course, everything was harder, <laughs> took much longer. But at the same time, as we kind of dug in, we we're like, whoa, this isn't an idea for one restaurant. This is an idea maybe for a national and one day global change. Yeah. Okay. So that was going to be one of my questions was from the get go, did you envision this? multi-unit growth path. And it sounds that was kind of baked into the DNA, the concept from day one. Yeah, kind of. I think when we originally started, it was, oh, let's open just, let's open one because it would be, it would just crush it here in our community. But as soon as we started writing the business plan, we realized that the opportunity was so much bigger than that. You know, 2000, it was, you know, when we were starting to write the business plan, it was like 2006 and we opened the first store 2007. So Chipola had just gone public you kind of seen this fast casual revolution taking place. You saw consumers looking to be healthier. You know, you had movies like, you know, Super Size Me had come out. And it was just like the beginning of that, you know, Michael Pollan's book had come out. Like all of these like conversations around, you know, how people thought about food were starting to take shape. And we kind of felt like, you know, in a lot of ways, we're very lucky with our age. You know, I'm a I guess an elder millennial, and we kind of saw our generation rejecting the fast food of, you know, maybe the prior generations. And 
we just kind of saw an opportunity, a niche in the market where we could create a fast food company that was also good for you and really build like this lifestyle brand and this mission driven brand around the whole thing. Amazing. That's yeah, it's super interesting timing too with, I guess, Chipotle going public. So maybe there was somewhat of a playbook kind of in place, but so when you guys actually founded it, when like the first location, you know, from what I found online was November, 2006. So were you guys graduated at that point? And this was like the full-time gig or was that, were you still in, in school? Yeah. So we started uh, writing the business plan fall of 06. By the time we opened, we actually opened in August 1st, 2007. So we graduated okay. in like May and we yeah. thought we'd open in April. Of course we were like every restaurant <laughs> that's, you know, <laughs> you know, usually opens. We were late and over budget, but we find we got open. You know, it was a very weird time right after graduation because first of all, during graduation, I'll never forget, like, you know, in in cap and gown, running from graduation to a construction site, you know, like fully like our mind was totally focused on sweet green. And then everybody leaves. Yeah. You know, like all your classmates, everybody leaves DC and you're just we just stayed and we were there all summer, like building this restaurant. And at that point, I had actually accepted a job a year earlier to go work for a consulting firm. I went to go work for a company called Bain and Company. And so uh, we yep. opened in August. I kept delaying this job because, you know, I was very focused on Sweet Green. <laughs> Finally, in November, I go show up because the job was in Boston. I just showed up. The reality was the restaurant was so small, couldn't afford to support the three of us, couldn't, could barely fit the three of us in it. Yeah. So I went to Boston, worked at Bain. Um, I was there for less than a year, almost, I was there for almost a year, learned a lot, met a lot of great people, but realized that, you know, I was, entrepreneurial life was what I loved. And like, even when I was at Bain, well, you know, I was in the bathroom half the time on phone calls, <laughs> you know, I probably wasn't the best Bain employee just because I was really focused on what I kind of felt was my life's mission. And as soon as yeah. we uh, decided to open restaurant number two and three, I left the job and moved back to DC. Okay. Got it. Well, I guess uh, was one of the co-founders like in the sweet green all day. Uh, yeah. And like even just that early stage. Yeah. For us, I mean, for the first few months, the three of us were running the place. We didn't have a manager. It was just like, yeah, that was what we did. We ran the restaurant. We did everything. Even when I came back, yep. you know, a year later, we were still running the restaurant. The first three restaurants we ran pretty much totally ourselves. We had no corporate infrastructure at all until we got to like restaurant, maybe five or six. And so it was very, very hands-on, which I think was good. You know, we had to learn every part of the business. We had to do it ourselves. And I think it really like helped shape are one in, in having never worked in the you know restaurants in the business i think coming at it with a first principles approach this like naivete was very helpful but also we had to get our hands dirty to really understand the business in order to continue to shape it for the future 100% now it's a constant theme whether it's a franchisee or anyone on the podcast that if they started out kind of just you know working uh, on the front line so to speak that they just are able to learn everything about the business. And it, it, I've never heard a negative scenario where that like didn't help them. By the way, even today, I mean, listen, we it's so easy to get stuck in, you know, the ivory tower, get, be in the corporate office and, you know, be behind a screen. But, you know, I remind my team, I have to remind myself that all the answers are in the restaurants. You know, we may, we require all of our corporate employees to work at least four ship, you know, four days a year in the restaurants. I spend, I look to spend about, you know, at least, uh, you know, 25 to a third of my time in restaurants. And 
it's where, you know, as much as you can learn from a PowerPoint, you know, a deck or, you know, looking at the numbers or, you know, having meetings at the end of the day, like that's where it all shows up in the consumer experience and the team member experience. And so it's just so important. A hundred percent. No, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in those early days, I just, so like, for instance, I tweeted about this beforehand, uh, just like to ask the audience, you know, what they'd want to learn. And a colleague of mine actually mentioned that she went, uh, or I think she lives in, she definitely lives in the DC area. I can't remember where she went to school, but anyway, she was asking about Sweet Life Festival. So what was that? I mean, I looked it up. It was like a proper music festival with like <laughs> legitimate headliners from Avicii, Kid Cudi, uh, Lana Del Rey, uh, you know, Calvin Harris. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I'm actually, I got some posters right above me. I don't know you can see them. Yeah, I saw uh, that too. It's so, perfect. So you yeah. can see these uh, in my office. So, you know, we started the first restaurant in 2007, you know, again, not knowing much about the traditional restaurant business or how to market. And, you know, we opened our second and, you know, we opened restaurant number two and three in 2009. When it got to restaurant number three actually did really well. They opened the restaurant two and three opened at the same time, also in DC. Uh, restaurant two was in DuPont Circle in DC and it just wasn't doing well. Uh, it, you know, it opened up and it was doing, you know, a fraction of what we expected the performer to be. And you realize that it was all about, it was just the fact that we couldn't get trial. We couldn't get like breakthrough to get people to try it. In Georgetown, it was easy because we were students. It was such a captive population, but it was hard for us to break through the noise. And for us, it was just bringing something that we, the other thing that we loved outside of food was music. And we thought that music was this like universal language, cool way to build community, just, you know, built essentially throwing a party, right? Is like, a great way to bring people yeah. together and bring community. Yes, remember we were like 22 or 23 years old. So we're like, all right, we're going to go. So we opened the second restaurant, was struggling that summer. One morning, Saturday morning, we decided to just go to Guitar Center. We buy a giant speaker. We post up in front of the restaurant and we just start DJing like on the street, just like playing music. <laughs> and, and it, you know, our friends came, everyone's hanging out. People are, you know, it started to create a little bit of like a community vibe and not just be a fast food restaurant. And then you had these like light bulbs go off, like, all right, the, the answer to the business is really building community. And what better way to build community than bringing like food and music together? And so that DJ set turned into a little block party. And that second restaurant was right. Uh, it was right where the DuPont farmer's market was. It's kind of like the big farmer's market in the area. And so we did this thing where every Sunday after the farmer's market, we would host these like block parties where we just bring local bands and DJs and artists and just bring the community together. It was a free event and people would just like hang out in a parking lot and play music and get to try the food. And we'd bring a bunch of our farmers in. And this thing kept on growing and growing to the point where like, all right, maybe we're on to something here. And we decided to throw a festival. The first festival was in that parking lot. It was free. It was a bunch, you know, the headlining act was Hot Chip, but we couldn't get Hot Chip to play. So we could just get them to DJ because they were playing a show that night. And it did well. It did, you know, again, it like started to give the brand a different like positioning. You know, it, it was this way of like taking from the original thought, which was we want to make healthy eating cool. Not usually in, in America, when you thought about healthy eating, it was like eat your vegetables. It's kind of granola. And we didn't think it had to be that way. There was a way to make it fun and show that it can still be delicious and cool. And that was the whole idea. And so the next year, we're like, all right, let's throw a real festival. The first one was like a thousand people. We're like, let's throw a real festival, like three to five thousand people. We start looking at venues. And we realize that the 
the festival business is really a fixed cost business, as in you have to build all this infrastructure, whether you have a thousand people or a hundred thousand people, you still have to build a stage, bathrooms, all that stuff and talent costs are fixed. Like you pay an artist once and if you're going to amortize it over a thousand tickets or a hundred thousand tickets, it's kind of the same cost. And so we met this guy who owns all the like big music venues in DC is named Seth. Uh, it was like the 930 club and Mary weather. And he, and he was, he also produces shows and he's like, listen, this might sound crazy, but why don't we just, you know, maybe we can do it at Meriwether post pavilion and Meriwether post pavilion is like the amphitheater in DC. And you were like, all right, we did the math. We're like, actually for the cost of building all the infrastructure, it's probably less risky to go do it at your amphitheater, but the amphitheater is a 20 plus thousand person amphitheater. And so we started talking about it. We started reaching out to bands. And I think we got really lucky that first year we got the Strokes to agree to headline. Once the Strokes said yes, like everybody else said yes. And then we were off to the races. You know, we sold almost 20,000 tickets that year. We ended up running the festival uh, for about, you know, seven years, grew to two days and over, you know, 25,000 people per day and some awesome acts. And, you know, like Kendrick Lamar, Calvin Harris, The Weeknd, Lana Del Rey, Phoenix. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was super fun. And it was our way of showing you could, we used to joke like this day that's usually the most unhealthy day of the year, usually really bad for the environment. Can we make it, can we create a place where you can go eat a bowl of quinoa while listening to Kendrick Lamar? And like, we loved like the (laughs) tension, the tension of that, that almost like doesn't, it it like, shouldn't make sense. Usually you go and you're like, eat a bunch of crap and they have this like fun day. It's like, can you do it and eat good, you know, delicious food and have this, you know, this fun, awesome festival. It's fascinating. And even just the, I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like. Just, you know, you still have three restaurants to run for, for that first one. And then you're also throwing a music festival. So, and like to sell 20,000 tickets. I mean, that's not by no means an easy feat. So like, did you, I'm sure you tapped into the Georgetown market, like college students, obviously, like who doesn't like a festival, but yeah, I mean, was it just digital marketing and was there, a, uh, yeah. So I'm curious, how did you sell that? We only had, yeah, yeah, we had, you have to remember we had like five restaurants, you know, like when we, at that point. And so like yeah. you're tiny, you're like a tiny little restaurant company with now a festival that huge names kind of started to get some national attention and the, we sold tickets, you know, through our channels. So like we use our social media we advertised it in our restaurants. We, you know, we, you know, all of our digital properties, and then we partnered with, you know, the promoter to sell the tickets. But it was really like it was. We realized it was really talent driven. That was like one of the things we learned. Also, what made the festival business hard in later years is, as talent got more and more expensive, it was like you lived and died by your headliner. And what made you know made us go from a thousand person festival to a twenty five thousand person festival actually is what started to make the festival really challenging, because then the fest you know when we started in two thousand eleven we were the only festival in the area. Fast forward four or five years and there was hundreds of festivals around the country, and they were now you know like eighty to a hundred thousand person festivals. And so, you know when you have eighty to hundred thousand people, you can pay the Rolling Stones and you can pay. Jay-Z and you you can pay these like really large artists and that's really what drove it. But that was also one of the, you know, to your point, what was really challenging is we were running a restaurant company and a festival company at the same time, all with like the resources of a tiny restaurant company. So for a few months a year, we would almost like the whole team, you know, including our store managers, everybody would like 
help out in like building and, and running this event. So it was really fun, but it was, it was also very stressful. Yeah, I would imagine. Honestly, I mean, it's just cool that you pulled it off and like you have the festival posters behind you. So I'm sure plenty of good memories, at least. Great memories. And I think it did a lot for the brand. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Were you able to see a noticeable bump in, in customers or foot traffic or just some type of brand awareness metric? You know, we were way less sophisticated back then. So we tried with all, we tried so hard to like justify it with like measuring comp store <laughs> sales and customer acquisition. And I remember at one point, you know, like email matching purchasers of the tickets to, you know, purchases at the festival and then our customers. And at the end, I think what we learned is it was a really interesting lesson in brand building is brand building happens over time. And brand positioning yeah. is something I think what we can never, we'll never be able to truly quantify what that did for us, but it totally opened so many doors. It positioned us in a completely different way and not just another salad. You know, there's hundreds of salad, you know, salad or healthy fast food chains out there. And this positioned us in a different way, connected to community and lifestyle in a different way. So to answer your question, like very hard to point to any like direct financial impact. But over time, I think it gave us a lot of license as a brand that this idea of the sweet life, that sweet green wasn't just a restaurant concept, but a, a lifestyle and a movement and a philosophy around it. I think it really gave, it brought that experience, brought that idea to life. And I think it taught us a lot about how you build a brand over time and how you build community over time. Yeah, it's fascinating, honestly. Just, uh, I, I doubt there's many restaurant brands that have ever done that launch a music festival for a few years. So <laughs> I, I, I had to touch on it. Yeah, we hope to bring it back one day. On hey, I'll attend the next <laughs> one for sure. Moving towards, I guess, so you guys had five restaurants. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the first major investment you guys took on was around 2013, about a $22 million round. You know, leading up to that, I guess I'm curious, how many locations did you have? open and did you explore alternative ways of expansion like was franchising ever on the table or is it always going to be the the venture capital route yeah so we talked a lot about franchising um from the very beginning i mean obviously as a restaurant concept it's a huge question especially considering most restaurants in the u.s are franchised for us i think the reasons we decided not to there's a few reasons one the unit economics of our restaurants were really strong so the cash on cash returns of the restaurants that we were building were, were really, really strong. Two, I think from the beginning, we set out to say we wanted to build this like once in a generation breakthrough brand. And in order to do it, we really thought that we had to control the experience. We really like, we're, you know, we always kind of like said, like, we want to play this, you know, build a hundred plus year brand. And we were always scared that franchising brought too much risk, especially given the high complexity of our restaurants from our supply chain to our fresh prep kitchens. Like it's, we were like scared to hand the keys to someone else because we were afraid that we would tarnish the brand and experience because it wasn't as, it's not as cookie cutter of an experience as a lot of the other franchises where it's just much easier to operate. It's not a commissary model. We make our food from scratch. And so we were really nervous about that. And then the third reason was we saw so much disruption coming to the restaurant industry. I think we got like saw early signs of how technology was going to shift the whole industry. And I think with that, we were really nervous of like having a, a company that 
you know, would have to convince our franchisees around investing and evolving. And we really wanted to kind of have that full control. So we really looked, you know, the companies we looked at or like in the restaurant space, it was like we thought Chipotle and Starbucks were kind of best in class. And we wanted to create those. And I think the last is, I think we were, while it was very hard to raise money for the first, you know, five or six years, we were really bootstrapping and kind of stringing along capital, you know, a couple of restaurants at a time. We had enough access to capital and we generated enough cash flow to keep going. And then we, I think we got really lucky. And I say this is like, I think it would be very hard to do what we did in another time period to be specific. Sweet Green, a lot of it was built in a zero interest rate era or generally a low, very low interest rate area where there was a lot of flow of capital. And I think that's what allowed us to build the infrastructure and build this footprint. And if you think about like the past 50 years, how many restaurants have been able to hit, call it like terminal velocity in a corporate owned format? It's just so few. You can count them on like one hand, right? It's really like Starbucks and Chipotle have like done it. And both had, you know, Chipotle kind of had the help of McDonald's in, in, in doing it. I think we were lucky that with the capital was flowing and we were able to attract it in a way that we could con- maintain control and keep it all company owned. How does franchising an easy to scale, always in demand business with affordable, low startup costs beginning at $85,000 and all the business support and coaching you'll need to succeed sound? Home Clean Heroes is a residential cleaning franchise dedicated to improving the community around them by donating a portion of their profits to support first responders. With extensive training resources and employee support, you'll have all the help you need to succeed. Interested in learning more about Home Clean Heroes' mission-based franchising model? Visit homecleanheroesfranchise.com to learn more. That's homecleanheroesfranchise.com. It's really interesting because initially I have heard, you know, there's other people who kind of say that where meaning they don't want to franchise because they're worried about quote unquote giving up control, which my typical pushback is, you know, hey, someone with skin in the game is actually going to care more about the restaurant or the whatever the franchise concept is than potentially, you know, a salaried manager who who isn't an owner or operator. However, part of my kind of the aspects of that that are implied in my head are always it's a it's a franchisable concept which it sounds like you're saying that there is you know more on the supply chain and the fact that it's not a commissary model that's definitely different than uh, a lot of the restaurant franchises I've spoken to so I guess assuming that it's not something that is necessarily easily easily trained or not something where you can transfer the knowledge and say a two-week training and then some remote phone calls uh, perhaps, you know, it, it it isn't something that would have maybe succeeded as a franchise. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think part of it was the premium positioning of the brand. You know, I think it's like both the price point, the experience, the consumer base. It, you know, it's we kind of play in this, you know, slightly elevated fast casual world where I think the consumers also expected a level of service that I think it would have been harder to control. I do think to your point, there is a lot of, like having an owner with skin in the game, there's a lot of value in terms of how they will run their restaurant and in some cases maybe run it better. I do think there's ways to do that and to incentivize your managers and you know how we build your the organization to still create that right incentive structure and make, you know, have that ownership feeling within their restaurants. But yeah, I think it's a it, it there's definitely advantages of franchising in terms of first to market. And that's the one thing that 
you know, it's put a lot of pressure on the company in terms of having to be first to market and scale rapidly and doing it all yourself. It is definitely challenging and it has forced us to raise, you know, a ton of capital and build an infrastructure to support it. You also asked me about uh, the, the first influx of the capital. We had, I just answered your question, we had 20, 20 restaurants. We had, you know, we spent the first six years really focused on DC. It was, I think, I don't know about how intentional that was, but I think it was, in retrospect, it was really smart. I think it saved us because I think if we had spread out early, we would have totally messed it up. But, you know, we, we, we cut our teeth in DC. We evolved the concept. We iterated a lot. It changed a lot. And we realized that like the restaurant business is really a local business. It's all about your business in that region, in that market. And so by focusing in one area, we were able to both leverage our supply chain and our brand, but really build like an ecosystem in one city and learn the playbook that we could take other places. And so we uh, did, you know, the first 15 or so in DC, started to, you know, do a couple in Philly. And then we had one location in Boston and one in New York. And it was the location number 20 uh, was our New York location. And that's when uh, Revolution came in with the first real investment. Up until then, it was, you know, kind of bootstrapped, a lot of angel investors. And we were raising like, yeah, a couple million dollars at a time. We'd raise like two million bucks, open three restaurants, you know, and the next year or a couple more, you know, just like what, you know, hand to mouth from a capital perspective. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's scrappy. And I think something you said that founders and people who maybe are considering starting their own franchise would just want to consider is, uh, the fact that you were aware of maybe that technology was going to play a larger role, uh, within restaurants over the coming decade. And, uh, that, that investment in technology maybe shifts in the business model where maybe, Hey, we're going to go heavy on, I don't know, other I'm just making up scenarios like creating our own app and we're going to accept customer orders from there or going on DoorDash and Uber Eats and we're going to accept that they take X amount of that revenue or whatever the situation is. You know, the reality is with the franchise, you know, if you want a system wide change, even something what I'm sure for you would be quite simple, which is like, hey, let's get new signs with our new logo on the restaurant. If you have a franchise, that's a big conversation. That's five to ten thousand dollars, depending on the signs. You know, and are they neon? Are they lighting up? Whatever. Like, that's a whole decision that you have to convince every single one to do. And it, there's going to be unhappy people, basically. But you guys are probably just able to kind of, I don't know. I'm sure you have financial controls in place. It's a public company, but like, theoretically, right? It's, you can snap your fingers if it makes sense. And you guys want the signs upgraded. 100%. And now imagine for a large investment, like the, you know, something like the Infinite Kitchen, which is our automation product. You know, now now try to convince a franchisee to, to invest in that, to put those in. And so, again, we saw the value of control being so, so important here. And I think in the short term, you know, we had so many opportunities. And I think it was really hard to say no, especially when we were capital constrained. Like we had, you know, thousands of franchise requests. You know, you had big franchisees, I mean, both international and here. I mean, still like you know, and especially when you're sitting there being like, oh my God, I'm trying to open two restaurants. He has someone offer to open a thousand for you and be in every city in America. I think it was very hard to say no to these things. But I think what kept us grounded was like the long-term vision always. Like we wanted to build something that stood the test of time. And, you know, we talked about like one of our, one of our core values thinking sustainably. And I just, we just never believed for our model. I don't believe this for all models. I think some franchises can work really well. But I think for our specific model and the vision that we had, it was important to maintain full control. 
Look, there's there's pros and cons to it. I mean, obviously, you guys have been able to achieve significant scale. And then, you know, you mentioned Starbucks, Chipotle. So it is possible. And there's definitely pros and cons to both sides. I do. Uh, so I want to talk about kind of what you mentioned, the, the aut- fully automated restaurants and uh, the infinite kitchen. But before we get there, just regarding uh, the fundraising. So, you know, you guys raised, I think, a ra- like total, I mean, it was hundreds of millions, I think maybe 365 is what I saw quoted. But regardless, it's less about the exact number, more just, you know, what does it take to do that? Meaning like, right, there's intense storytelling and it's really not everyone can just raise that much money. You need to think so big and have the confidence to back it up. I mean, did you guys get to a point where, or I'm trying to think of how to ask this, I guess. Yeah. I mean, was there ever just moments of doubt where you're like, like, you know, guys, we're we're just a salad restaurant, but here you are, you know, pitching this massive vision in the community and, and all these things. I mean, yeah, like w- just curious to learn about the learning moments, I guess, and, and any anything from that, just that time period where you're you're really raising some big uh, fundraising rounds. Yeah, I think fundraising is really interesting because it's like the gauntlet that you have to go through as an entrepreneur. And it's kind of like this idea of writing a business plan where the business plan itself, you throw it away, you know, you kind of like as soon as it's done and you throw it away and, and you go run the business. But the act of doing it really clarifies the vision and your thinking. And I think kind of raising money is an extreme example of that, especially when you have a really hard time raising money. So, you know, we opened the first one in 2007, but number two and three, 2008, 2009, middle of the financial crisis. And, you know, it was really hard to raise money. We had very little track record. So what it really forced us to do is one, you know, through that, you know, those years and then even later years really clarify our thinking. And so like the fundraising moments became these like milestone moments that one, we had to make sure that we had achieved certain things in the business, proved certain critical milestones that would allow us to raise more money, but to clarify the vision, the thinking, the strategy so that we could, you know, we get to sell that story so many times that you really had to believe it in order to do that you had to really clarify and like distill it down to really you know who we are and what we want to be so i think the fundraising actually made in some ways made the company better strategically and set this north star because we had to convince all these investors to give us money we had to clarify it for ourselves and for our team and i think that was really helpful i do think in terms of you know what what allowed us to do it i think one we were in, in this category that was growing and that's always important you know important we were in fast casual which was the fastest growing part of the restaurant industry and then we were in the healthy segment of fast casual which was the fastest growing part of that yeah we were digitally enabled which was a huge part of our story and i think people saw a lot of transformation how that could be an accelerant to what we were doing we were very people focused in terms of like bringing on a team and not I think one of the things that we did is the team helped us a lot because we've always knew what we knew and still do and know what we don't. This is my only real job I've ever had. And so I wasn't, you know, working at another restaurant company before. I'm now the CEO of a public restaurant company with over 6,000 employees. And I think what allows me to do it is just knowing where I don't know the answer. And that means I have to just hire really great people around me and ask for help and ask for advice. And I think that was also a part of it as part of the fundraising. It's like, hey, we have this vision, but I'm not doing it myself. I'm going to bring on 
great operating partners and great technical partners and all, you know, all these other people to fill in the gaps on the things that I don't know how to do. And I think it just not the last, you know, most probably most important thing about fundraising is like unit economic in our business. It's there's two things for fundraising. It's what are your unit economics? What's like the cash on cash returns of your actual units? And what's the addressable market? Like how big can it be? And I think we were able to kind of tell the story and we had the proof that your unit economics were awesome. They were replicatable. And we think we can have thousands, you know, at the time we thought, you know, it was probably hundreds. And now we think it's probably thousands of these that we can have across the U.S. and hopefully one day across the globe. Yeah, I definitely think that that even if you're not fundraising, just writing out a business plan as if you were going to raise money could have such a value because, yeah, it does bring you clarity and forces you to really think about what makes my business valuable. And maybe you'll find, oh, wait, I should be doing X, Y, Z because right now I'm actually missing out on things. So uh, very interesting to hear you kind of talk about that. And something you brought up earlier was the Infinite Kitchen and you're fully, it's a new newer, I think there's, is there only one open today? Yeah. Can you kind of just give us an idea of like, you know, paint a picture for the listeners here. Uh, uh, what is it? And, you know, I have a lot of follow-up questions, of course, but uh, we can start there. Yeah, of course. So, so let me just take a step back. You know, I talked about the complexity of our model. You know, we're very high throughput operation. We run multiple channels, heavy customization. So our orders on average have 10 to 12 items. 80% of them are customized. It's just like, a lot of not only a lot of complexity in, you know, obviously the fresh and local supply chain, the scratch cooking in terms of the prep, but then the assembly. And when we thought about big picture, we thought about the restaurant industry. And there's something I used to always tell my team is, you know, restaurants, there's businesses that as they get bigger, they get better. And then there's restaurants that as they get bigger, they get worse. And I'm talking about the actual experience. And restaurants, for the most part, as they get bigger, it's like this like death by a thousand cuts where the actual experience gets worse. And in your case, you want to take McDonald's as like a case in point. We've all seen, you know, you've seen the founder, you know how they used to use beef tallow and certain things around their food. And, you know, it's not that anymore. And the reason they've had to do that, they've had to engineer for scale. The engineering for scale in the previous world had meant, you know, commissaries and process the food so you can simplify the node, the the edge, like the end point, make it as, kind of dummy proof as possible and easy to execute as well as increase the margins for the actual units. We found that very much counter to our what we were all about, which is like our, we were founded on this idea of fresh, you know, fresh, you know, really well-sourced delicious food. And we were really worried that like, all right, at scale, are we going to have to give all that up in order to have the efficiencies to have a really great business? In other words, saying like, are we going to have to be just like everybody else? and process our food in a center and send it out to the nodes just so they can run easier because at scale, it's hard to manage these things. And we always kind of believe that there maybe there was a different way to approach this using technology. So step one was how do we use software in the restaurants to actually enable us to maintain our scratch cooking? So we built these tools. One was called our cold prep, and then we have another hot prep, which is there's a lot of complexity in all these items that we're making from scratch every day. Instead of you like kind of guessing how much to do, right? And there's like a huge cognitive load of like going through spreadsheets and deciding how much of what to make when. Can we make it super easy for you and just be like, have an app. It's like a GPS in the restaurant where it's all the answers are there. So it tells you exactly how much of what to make when. So you're making the right amount of food that stays fresh 
both hot and cold and in terms of your ordering. So like the manager's job and the team member's job is just like they have this GPS. So that was part one. We then saw that the value in the sweet green experience is how we source the food, that we make it from scratch in, in the restaurants, and then like the combinations. The actual, if you think about and there's the hospitality in the restaurant matters, the service experience. But we didn't see there's that there's given that most of our volume is actually most of our revenues happening on digital make lines where customers aren't even like seeing it being made. So there's not as much of the value in the actual assembly. And so we always kind of thought that there was an opportunity to automate assembly. And so years ago, probably five, five or six years ago, we began doing it ourselves, trying to do it ourselves. We built an automation team, tried to do it ourselves, found it was very, very challenging to actually do. The engineering challenges were pretty significant. And so then we met a team out of MIT that we'd been following, you know, founders, this guy, Michael Freed and the Spice team. And they had built a, a concept called Spice Kitchen, which was you know, essentially kind of sweet green automated. And it was, that was like literally like a huge part of their vision was let's do what sweet green did, but let's automate it. And, it, you know, it'll be a more replicatable model. And so they built this incredible automation product. They had opened two restaurants and we stayed close with them. We just stayed in conversation. And then there was an opportunity about two years ago for us to join forces and we acquired the company and they joined sweet green. And they, we then spent the next, you know, year and a half evolving that automation system to work it to work at Sweetgreen. And so a couple months ago, we opened our first unit in Naperville in Chicago. And it's not a robotic arm. I think the way most people are approaching automation, it's a fully integrated like dispensing system that has been custom made for Sweetgreen. And it means it focuses on the maintaining the quality of food, perfect portioning, plating, it even spins, incredibly high throughput, and our goal with it was not, it, you know, I think that when we set out to do it, it was let's not create a technology that just improves our financially, you know, the financial model, which of course, like that'd be great, but also creates a better customer experience. And I think what allowed us to do it is we were willing to think from like first principles, not about like, how do we put this in an existing unit and try to replicate our existing flow? It was with this technology, how would, could we rethink the total restaurant experience you know, from a first principles approach. And so we opened just a couple months ago. I'd encourage you guys, anyone to go check it out. There's a lot of videos online. We're very excited by it. You know, so far results have been encouraging, but we're learning a ton. Uh, we're going to continue to test it and probably we're going to do another pilot later this year before we commit to a broader rollout. But overall, I think it's going to be a huge improvement in the sweet green experience, the actual experience. I think it'll improve our unit economics. It'll create a more scalable model. Over time, it'll allow us to even play with price in different ways to create you know, more accessibility. And I do think it's something that you'll see much more in the industry. Yeah, it's fascinating to see what's happening. And you know, I know that there's a lot of, or that there's some other restaurants that are seriously experimenting with automation. I saw Crumble Cookies as they're building a robotics division to test out ideas within their restaurant. So it's going to be really interesting if you could just, I, I'd love to have a crystal ball and fast forward. Uh, to see how it's all going to shake out and look like. But it's really cool that you guys are really pushing and leading the charge there. I do want to ask, it sounds like, so did you guys build in-house proprietary software to help with that, to maintain quality at scale so that anyone working there, like, like you mentioned, cognitive load, but it, I guess basically just makes it operationally a lot easier because the, you have some software that's telling them exactly what to make or prep food for a day at the restaurant. Is that 
kind of how it works? Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately, when we started Sweetgreen, we kind of saw a digital transformation taking place in the industry, and we didn't. Unfortunately, I think from the, like being pioneers and early movers, there wasn't a lot out there, a lot of software out there that does what we do. I mean, I'll be honest, even today, I wish there was a Shopify. I wish there was a one-stop shop solution. Yeah. So anyone listening, like someone build that. <laughs> because I think I don't, you know, <laughs> people ask me, uh, you know, like as a restaurant, we're in a restaurant, a food company or a technology company. We, we are a food company. We are yes. a brand in a food company, period, full stop. Everything else we do is an enabler to that. So technology, we did it because we had to do it. We saw a wedge and a way to accelerate our business. And like, do I think I should, I needed to build an app? Like, did I want to build apps ourselves? Like build an ordering app? Absolutely not. I'd rather go to a the Shopify solution and just pay a fee and do it. However, it didn't exist. And so we, I think we paid a lot of pioneer tax in order to do these things. I think the industry's changed a lot. Now, a lot of those things you can buy off the shelf. And I think it, what's great about that is it can allow restaurants to go back to doing what they're supposed to do, which is not build technology. It's to create awesome food and create great customer experiences. At the end of the day, that's what I'd want. I want Sweetgreen to really be focused on. We will continue to do those things where we have to, right? Automation being an example, I couldn't buy it. Any, you know, if someone would rent it to me, I would have been, it would have been nice, but no one was doing that. So we thought it was important to build it. To your question on those, those proprietary apps. Yeah, we did build, we do have those proprietary apps. And I do think we'll always do some proprietary things around technology that, you know, that are enablers to what we do. But at the end of the day, it all has to support our core value proposition, which is like Sweetgreen as a brand and a food company. Amazing. It is interesting to think because, yeah, you guys really were founded and started out well before even that Uber wasn't even super popular. Or maybe it wasn't even founded. Uber, Uber didn't yeah, even exist. So. <laughs> we, we, we started, the, I mean, we always, it's like we started the same year the iPhone came out. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. So you guys were pretty early. <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah. That's interesting, the pioneer tax. But yeah, I completely agree. I've been speaking with some brands and some of them have ideas to like build their in-house software. And the thought is it's going to make our business more valuable at the end of the day. But I completely agree with you. I mean, if you have something off the shelf that, that works really well for you, then use it. Because, you know, like there's a famous quote by Jeff Bezos on, I don't know how he was comparing AWS to breweries in like Germany back in like the 1800s or something, like right when electric power started to come about. And I guess some breweries were obsessed with building their own power sources. And those ones ended up failing because they stopped focusing on making good beer. And that's like the famous quote, like just focus on making good beer. And obviously he's talking about just use AWS so that don't build out your own servers. It's not going to help your core business. But yeah, I'd imagine it's kind of nice today, right? Though to have your own product suite that, that kind of works tailored specifically to your business. But still, I do agree if there's like a Shopify-esque product out there for any business owner focus on the core competency totally and i think the world's changed is it's just different now in 2023 than it was you know we introduced our app we were kind of one of the first apps to market it was 2010 so i remember it was like people thought we were <laughs> crazy that we wanted to build a you know an ordering app it was just like a way yeah. out there concept of like oh you want to do mobile payment and cut the line with an app Oof. Like now that's all just like, it's the cost of doing business. It's cost, it's price of entry to have those things. And for a small business, like you can just go to Toast or, you know, one of the other providers and they can give a lot of, give that to you out of the box. And so I think as you get larger there, you know, you may want to build some more custom products as you scale, but there really has to be a true ROI there. I don't think that the world of just having tech for tech sake is over. 
hundred percent. Completely agree. Well, look, I know we're out of time here. So uh, it was a lot of fun to have you on, Jonathan. You know, if there's anywhere online where people can follow along, obviously, I'm sure most of us know about Sweet Green. So you can check out their website if you haven't shopped or, or eaten there yet. But uh, personally, or, you know, do you have any social handles where people can follow along? Yeah, yeah. For Sweet Green, uh, you know, always, you know, check us out at Sweet, at Sweet Green, sweetgreen.com, download our app. And then for me, I'm Johnny Nemo on Twitter, J O N N Y N E M O. Sweet. All right. We'll plug the Twitter account in the show notes, everyone, if you want to give them a follow. And I'll be tweeting about this for certain. So, yeah. Thanks again, Jonathan. Good to chat. Awesome, man. I'm a huge fan. Thanks, dude. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. 